Good to be back and thanks again. It's just so good to be here as well. Although Rick assured me, look, John, you can't sit on that row there because that's where all the mums and the prams and the babies sit. But look at, look at you go, hey? Yeah, it's, uh, it's good. And uh, I should say, you guys are almost as good looking as the crowd I was at with before, earlier at 8.30. So uh, anyway, um, hey, open your Bibles up to that Luke 9 passage. We're going to get into that and uh, that would be good. And I'm going to... Um, give you a challenge to talk about something that might be a little bit uncomfortable you know over a cuppa um, after we finish this morning is just to tell a story about when you failed spectacularly at something you know you just um, could be anything but uh, you know it just sort of left you wondering why am I here why did I bother even trying to do that or whatever it is um, and look, let's be honest, so much as life is like that, I think it's sort of like, you know, they say to be human is to doubt. I think to be human is just to be stuffing up all the time as well. Let's be honest. Um, we can be honest this morning, can't we? We're, we're all, yep, among friends, good. Um, but you think about it, like when have you, you've just got it wrong with study, uh, you know, with work, you know, you've walked in, you've prepared an exam using all the past exam papers, only to find out, oh, far out, they did put that question in there. Hmm, it's worth 50% of the paper. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, um, or, or you know, work um, where, where you've, you've just you're just struggling to get it right. You've failed at something, or I guess more precious, more important, is a relationship um, where you've just forgotten. You haven't remembered well, and you've just gone, you know, and yeah, it's under stress, strain, or worse. For those of us here who identify as Christian this morning, it's so easy to feel like that for most of our time we're failing, we're falling short of some real or imaginary standard as well. Or perhaps you're here this morning feeling pretty cruisy, you're coasting along in life, and you know. but then there might be some of us here who are just, you know, man, I'm just trying my guts out at this Christian stuff and I just can't seem to get it right or you're just not measuring up. Well, if that's you, then you're in really good company with those disciples uh, who are hanging around with Jesus that we heard about in Luke chapter 9. And importantly, um, I mean, you could sort of read that chapter and just think it's all about failure, failure, failure. But it's all there um, like um, the black backdrop you know, of a stage to shine the spotlight and help us to see more clearly the star of the show, which is Jesus. To see Jesus, God's cure for faltering and failing disciples who are wanting to get fit or fitter and to grow in their service of Jesus. To see ourselves more clearly, you've got to see Jesus more clearly in Scripture. To see that he really is worthy of our trust. Now my son Aaron, he's an exercise physiologist, been doing that for about four years now. He works with ECH, which is mainly um, the more mature people. And um, he, he says that the whole point of existence and why exercise physiology is one of the fastest growing sort of careers is because um, people... Um, smarter than me have worked out that uh, you and I uh, we struggle to exercise consistently Uh, we need help we need motivation we need encouragement but also instruction we need to be helped how to exercise in a way that actually fits with our health uh, our age and stage of life etc etc and so he's trained to do that and he says that the the people who do best at it are the ones who come and they're part of his groups and he says it's fantastic getting together and have a lot of fun but they're the ones who, who seem to be getting the fittest and doing the best, getting together in groups. And it got me thinking that it's sort of really what this is all about, why it's so good that you're here this morning and, and you keep getting together as often as you can. Because 
um, it's what the Christian life is. It's sort of getting spiritually fit for the kingdom. And, and can I say, I'm in all sorts of different churches, love coming up here. Um, you have got uh, some of the, you know, the most fantastic spiritual exercise EPs going around. You know, uh, with Rick and Dave and, uh, and Micah and their families. And, and I hope you're thankful for them because that's what they're here trying to do. They're trying to actually help you to get spiritually fit to meet your Lord and Saviour on that day. And that's really what God is trying to do in this part of Luke's Gospel, Luke 9, this morning. So the thing about getting spiritually fit, we can't do that without God's help. So I thought it might be good to pray um, before we get into it and ask for his help. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, thanks so much for this part of your word. Um, it's, it's pretty confronting, but at the same time, there is an immense encouragement there for us this morning. Uh, help us, we pray, to finish our time this morning, all of us, seeing Jesus more clearly and understanding more of our need and more of his majesty and splendor in who he is and what he's done for us on his cross. And we pray this because we do want to actually grow in our service of you. We do want to be fit for the kingdom. And we want to do this for the sake of the lost who need to hear about your son and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 1,579, if you want to follow along in those Bibles you got there. Um, we started on last week's reading because the whole chapter is about you know, taking us, the reader, up the mountain. And then back down the mountain and what happens after that, isn't it? And Jesus had just taken uh, Peter, John and James up to a mountain to pray after he'd um, given them his first prediction and said, look, I'm, I'm going to, to suffer and die at Jerusalem. And then to say the importance of actually letting go of whatever you need to, to take up your crossbeam and follow after me. Um, if you're serious about saving your life, that's what you've got to do. And then he's taken these guys up the mountain to pray and to pull a pull the curtain back on uh, something of the glory, the majesty of his identity as the all-powerful son of God and the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord who uh, is talked about in five servant songs, if you like, or prophecies in the book of Isaiah, um, 700 years before Jesus rocked up. Anyway, um, to show us that who has actually come um, to save us and provide safe passage home to life with God in heaven when we die. That Jesus, if you like, is our safe passage exodus leader to lead us safely and securely home to life with God. And he's going to do that by a cross. Anyway, they come back down the mountain as we heard, Peter, James and John, they say nothing. There's, their lips are sealed um, about what they've seen. And we pick it up um, Verses 37 to 43 there. Because what um, Luke and, and, and God's really wanting us to see here is to see the mega power authority of Jesus to save an unbelieving and an unable humanity. To see the, the beautiful authority of Jesus he has to save an unbelieving and an unable humanity. Now just a simple observation. That, that Jesus chose to come back down the mountain into the throbbing mass of hurting um, and helpless humanity is an expression of God's phenomenal love uh, that we are not alone. You are not alone or abandoned in what can feel like a God-forsaken world. But like walking in 
two uh, showdown on Adelaide Oval. Um, the first one last year where the crows won, not the second one. Anyway, Jesus, he is immediately confronted by that throng of humanity and a desperate, desperate father coming to Jesus, pleading for him to please save my son who's been overrun by the power of evil. What does he say? Verse 39, And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, I don't know if you've lived long enough on the the planet to know something of this father's desperation. His desperation. I saw it uh, heaps as a doctor. Gita sees it as well. And, And we both felt it firsthand as parents with our kids. Uh, Ella, uh, she's the fourth. She was born prem, small, uh, two two weeks home. She got a virus, took her to the hospital, and um, seen by the nurse, put in the ward, etc., etc. Um, and come in a few days, see her really labouring, and say, look, the doctor's got to come up, um, and she's like, you know, struggling to breathe. Anyway, they doctor comes up, thinks, oh, immediately gets on the phone to um, Westmead Kids Hospital. We're, we're in Sydney at this stage. And that they come out, it's called a crash team, a retrieval team, and they come in and they see her and, and serve it up to the staff um, uh, to, to let this go so long and rush her back to hospital. We follow, we get there. By, by then, um, she's in this glass, big glass room. This little, little girl, tubes sticking out of her everywhere. Doctor's saying, we don't know if she's going to make it. And here we are, two professionally trained medicos, helpless, three metres away, behind the glass, watching on, powerless, desperate. All we could do is pray. Do you know this father's desperation? He's desperate. And whether whatever comes at you or has come at you or coming at you, at life, disease or death or your own moral failures that are just tripping you up, shockingly or you're feeling the touch of evil real evil in this world you're feeling something of a groaning world that's out of control jesus is teaching us that there are real life destroying forces at work in this world and that are completely out of our control for us to do anything about And that only Jesus can save us. See, look with me. Despite being given authority over evil uh, by Jesus at the start of chapter 9, Jesus' disciples are impotent. They're unable to save this boy. I mean, what gives? What's going on here? Well, it's why Jesus quotes some old words from a book in the Bible called Deuteronomy. O faithless unbelieving and twisted perverse bent badly behaving generation how long am i to be with you and 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 bear with you now why is he quoting these words from so long ago well they're from a period in israel's relationship with god called the exodus there's a book called exodus tells the story of exodus if you haven't read it or haven't read it for a while go back and have a read because it's a ripping read But the Exodus is when God saved his people from slavery in Egypt through his saviour leader, Moses, and gave them safe passage through the Red Sea, safe passage through the wilderness, 
where God fed them, you know, manna from heaven, all that sort of stuff, and brought them to himself at Mount Sinai to be his covenant people. Now, here's the thing. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says to them repeatedly through Moses, look, guys, I've only chosen you for one reason, because it's through you I want all the nations to come to know me and to know how blessed it is to come and join and be part of my people. There is nothing about you as to why I chose you. Nothing at all. You're like the rest of, that you're perverse, you're unbelieving, okay? And the only reason I've chosen you is because of my mercy, because of my eternal purposes of love and grace to gather people from all nations to myself. Now here we are, hundreds and hundreds of years later, Jesus' diagnosis of humanity in Luke 9.41 is that humanity's spiritual condition remains unchanged. O faithless, unbelieving and twisted, perverse, bent, badly behaving generation. Having worked as a doctor, now Gita has many more stories about this. The hardest task with people who come in is convincing them of their diagnosis and that they really, really need to take the medicine. <laughs> it doesn't do any good if you just leave it by your, your bed on the table, if you don't take it. Like, you, you've actually got to take it. <laughs> and that's sort of what's going on here. That Jesus heals the Father's Son with a word, reveals the love and compassion of Jesus and the stunning authority Jesus has to save us from what most threatens. Healing the rest- and restoring the child to his father as well. I mean, it's just it's a beautiful glimpse of just how good heaven's going to be. Like, you just want to be there. Like, in this forever home that God's made for you, no crying, no evil, no suffering, no pain, no death, nothing but goodness. Do you know the relief and the joy of this father? I mean, Gita and I, we were just overcome with tears to have our little girl given back to us well. Now, fun fact, coming back to Luke 9, fun fact. Uh, this episode is recorded three times in, the, in, in three of the Gospels. So Luke is the only Gospel writer that reports the reaction of the crowd, verse 43. What is it? Have a look with me. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. All were astonished at the majesty of God. When were you last astonished at God's majesty? At his grace for your life? Like blowing away. Second fun fact. That little word majesty in verse 43 means literally power ranger. Avenger. No, it doesn't. It means mega power, okay? But uh, you, some of you, at least, I've got more reaction here than I did in the, the okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> you got, Luke's trying to, he's trying to let us know that this Jesus, you put all of the world leaders together who've ever lived, I mean, their, their power and authority is just like a drop on a bucket compared to Jesus. You put all the superheroes that they ever make movies about, just a drop on the bucket compared to the authority, the power that, that this Jesus has. Luke's trying to just help us see that this Jesus has the power, the authority, the credentials to actually save 
this unbelieving and perverse humanity and bring them safely home to God. Provide everything, everything they need to be saved and brought safely home to God. Now that's back then. You think, oh, yeah, but today, I mean, poor, different world today. I mean, you know, stuff that's going down for Christians. And is the gospel, gospel really still powerful to save? Like, is, is God really still doing this stuff today? Uh, two weeks ago, I met Gemma sitting at the pub up there at the Roxby, enjoying a good snitty. And uh, Gemma was there. She had two of her kids and, you know, got a new baby as well. And husband had just finished work after 14 hours and, and, and said, oh, you know, how'd you come to be here? She says, oh, well, actually, I didn't want last place on earth I wanted to go to was Roxby but you know uh, I met Loki my, Loki, my husband uh, he was at Woomera you know we got married uh, he, he's moved from Woomera to to uh, to Roxby to work after immigrating out from South Africa and here we are three little kids and um, and she said look honestly I've only been in the church for 18 months I, I wasn't a Christian um, but what happened, I, I, I sort of was, I began to feel really anxious about the future, you know, my kids and just life out of control and, and, and like, and, and really was affecting me in any way. Um, she's saying every day I'd take the kids in the morning for an hour or two to the Roxby hub where uh, mums and kids would go to hang out and they'd play and Beth McDonald, so she's the wife of Glenn, like they're the BCA family up there, okay, Roxby Community Church. She never goes to the hub but she had to go there for some reason this day. Ends up bumping into Gemma. She's chatting with her like for two minutes and realises that oh she's really anxious, she's really stressed out and stuff. And so she invited her along to her church and, and they came. And Gemma shares that, you know, she sort of went home and said, Loki, who hadn't been to church for like 20 years, since South Africa as a kid, uh, said, we're going to church this Sunday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so they went along, walked in and just received this warm welcome and, and, and you know, began immediately to just sort of feel this peace begin to seep into her life and anyway they just kept going back and and they were loved and cared for and began to learn this good news gospel this all about this powerful Jesus who really is in control and and as she's talking her face is sort of lighting up more and more this beautiful big smile as she shares about just how good it is you know I became a Christian six six months later um, and now it's just to know the peace of Christ and, and she's not anxious about the future or tomorrow anymore and that, and that Loki's loving being back at church and he's realised that that's what's been missing in his life since coming to Australia and, and now they're running one of the two Bible study groups in the town, <laughs> in their house. And now other people are coming to find out about Jesus through Loki and Gemma. The gospel is still powerful to save. God is still saving. And that brings us to what happens next and how to think about our discipleship. Verses 44 to 62 really paint a picture of what happens when Jesus' followers fail to see Jesus clearly. And so 43 to 45, what what do blind disciples need to see clearly? But while they were all marvelling at everything Jesus was doing Jesus said to his disciples let these words sink into your ears the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men second prediction of his cross let these words sink into your ears it's really emphatic Jesus is trying to impress on those within earshot then and now that their salvation 
their safe passage through death and God's judgment, it really will involve his suffering and death and also costly discipleship. But they did not understand, we're told. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. Now God's teaching um, them and, and reminding us now about spiritual blindness. That is, the effect of unbelief and pride and perverse behaviour in the world is that people don't want to know or believe what's in the Bible. They don't want to see or hear what's there. And part of God's judgment on um, a humanity that refuse to acknowledge or believe in God is that he gives them over to their unbelief and their blindness so that, so that without God's help it's impossible for them to see or understand the truth of Jesus from the scriptures. You see, we've got to remember where we're up to in salvation history here. Jesus has come to last days, Old Testament Israel, he hasn't died on the cross yet. So before they can see and understand Jesus, they need first for Jesus to die and be raised and so they can be given that spiritual insight. Which is why Jesus' words about him being handed over and suffering and dying in Jerusalem was gobbledygook to his disciples. So we sort of got to cut him a bit of slack here. They and us need to be saved into the truth of Jesus by Jesus. They need the gospel. And so it's not until after Jesus' cross and resurrection that we're told by Luke that their eyes are open to see Jesus. When Jesus interpreted to his followers all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. It's while the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they spend a day with Jesus. He's doing biblical theology, just showing how all the Old Testament scriptures point to him and his death, suffering, resurrection on the cross, resurrection. And finally there's that aha moment. Where their eyes are open, aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that brings us to the disciples' failure to see who is the greatest. Verses forty-six to fifty. See, it explains why they just keep getting their following wrong because they're not seeing Jesus clearly. We're told an argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Um, have you guys had that discussion yet about who's the greatest here? No, you haven't? Okay, I just saw. Okay, I'll leave you to it. Well, actually, now you've got Mikey on the team. Well, mate, there's just no context. What a cracking kids talk, eh? <laughs> you guys maybe can do that vote thing, you know, who the greatest is here. But anyway, no, no. How human is this characteristic of posturing for position, isn't it? Power and, you know, and recognition. We sort of, it's just something about us. Spiritual blind, they're unable to see that, of course, Jesus, the greatest, the Son of Man, is among them. And that in the economy of God's kingdom, greatness is serving. The greatest are the servants. The greater the service, the greater the disciple. Jesus illustrates what genuine discipleship looks like using a child. Now, unlike today, when let's, let's be honest, Children are the centre of our universe, right? I mean, they just... But it couldn't be more different in Jesus' day. I mean, they were the lowest of the low, kids. Um, and, and so Jesus pulls this kid in, this child, and 
you know, no status, could offer no reward or return for service, nothing. To teach us that humble trust in Jesus and humble service of Jesus and his people and his gospel purposes, this is the character of an authentic disciple. Humble trust, humble service, humbly speaking the gospel. In verses 49 to 50, the next symptom of failing to see Jesus clearly is that we know it's this... I mean, let's be honest. I mean, one of the reasons I love coming up here is because you guys, you've actually got the truth. I mean, everyone else is out there got a bit wrong, but you're the real deal here, aren't you? Like, you know, so... Uh, but that's sort of what's going on here. Jesus, says John, that guy over there, he's casting out spirits in your name. You know, when he's not one of us, I'm going to go stop him. You know, it's, it's that old provincialism. It's like, you know, um, but he says, no, 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 no. I mean, he's, 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 whatever he's doing it, he's doing it in my name. Just let him go. Let him go. Now, these last two episodes, they warn us that Jesus, um, and don't want to shock you, but he's not after hot shots. Okay. Um, he's after humble, servant-hearted followers who aren't out to make a name for themselves but solely to make a name of Jesus. Now sadly, there are too many who look at ministry, the public platform and think, cool, a way to be popular, a way to make a name for yourself. We turn for the home straight, verses 51 to 62, it takes us to the crux of Jesus and discipleship. The crux of Jesus and discipleship. Now crux um, means cross. It's Latin for cross. You've learned Latin this morning. How about that? Crux equals cross. These words, they are the hinge in Luke's gospel where Jesus turns for Jerusalem and his death on a Roman cross. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, verse 51. That word taken up is literally the word for departure or exodus that was used um, to talk about what Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. Okay, it's a similar thing. It's actually a different word, but same sort of translation. Jesus' departure or exodus. It's referring to Jesus' death, but also his taking up uh, resurrection, if you like, his ascension as well. And it's a word that's used three times talking about Elijah's departure in 2 Kings chapter 2. The expression, Jesus set his face, Jesus set his face, is a phrase from Isaiah. A phrase that would be spoken by God's saviour and servant of the Lord. From Isaiah 50 verses 5 and 7. I've actually got it up on the screen. Here it is. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. How does the servant of the Lord express his obedience to God's word? Verse 5. Well, he does this despite immense suffering. Now, seriously, we're talking like, again, second thing you can do at morning tea 
is go up to Dave and say, Dave, would it be okay if I just pulled out a bit of your beard? I want to see if it hurts. You'd be right, that mate, is it? Yeah, well, there you go. Does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts. Okay. <laughs> but um, he does this despite his suffering, and he shows his obedience by setting his face like flint, which literally means unstoppable, tenacious, undeterrable commitment to a goal, to a cause. Like it's just nothing is going to stop this servant from his goal from his destination God's saviour servant can do this because he has complete confidence that God will bring him through the suffering did you pick that up see Jesus can determine to tenaciously set his face for Jerusalem to endure the suffering and the shame of his cross because he knows God is his help because he knows that God will raise him from the dead because God's promised it in the Bible and God always keeps his promises always Now, Jesus is the one who's gone before us. So if God's been faithful to him, we can be confident he will be faithful to his followers. As we too set our faces like flint to let go of whatever we need to, to take up our cross beam and to follow after Jesus more determinedly, to serve him like never before. To serve his gospel purposes like never before. Because God is faithful. And so we come from Jesus' commitment here to Jesus' correction in verses 52 to 56. The failure of the Samaritan village to receive Jesus is because of the offence of Jesus' mission in Jerusalem. I mean, they had their own temple, but Jesus wasn't going to stay and be distracted. No, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's a a time of reminder that the offence of Jesus is always the offence of the cross. The message of the cross is the offence. That you are faithless and perverse, you need to be saved by Jesus. It's so offensive, but it's such good news. The takeaway for us is Jesus' strong rebuke of James and John here, who, you know, trying to defend Jesus' honour, They think, hey, Jesus, let's call down napalm on the whole town and wipe them out, you know. Um, He's like, whoa, whoa, you know. Um, Guys, uh, justice is God's to give alone. Uh, But secondly, haven't you worked out yet that I've come to save, not to judge? Everyone's already under judgment. I've come to save. Now is the time of salvation. Now the gospel needs to be preached so people can turn, be forgiven and be saved. And so now is the time for patient, long-suffering love as we continue to speak the gospel with people knowing that God alone can give repentance and change hearts. The people that are near to us, dear to us, who just are so crusty-hearted, not, you know, don't want to hear it, you know, um, you just feel like giving up on them. But no, 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 we need to continue patiently and long-suffering love, walk alongside them, holding out the gospel, praying for God to, only, to do what only God can do. And so verses 57 to 62 is all about clarity. Clarity for flint-faced followers of Jesus. Say that quickly. Clarity for flint-faced followers of Jesus. Um, 57, 58. Um, Count the cost of my cross, says Jesus. So you want to be my follower? Well, if you really want to understand what that's about, you've got to look at my cross, understand the cost, what it costs, 
what your salvation cost. It's a sort of beautiful story here of Jesus' tenderness and kindness to that naive enthusiast. You know, he's like, oh, Jesus, you know, oh, I really want to follow you, Jesus. Like, um, yeah, where, where are you going? Yeah, I'll go there too. Like, but he hasn't done his homework. He's got, he's got no idea what he's signing up for. I mean, I love enthusiastic people. But Jesus says it's important that we help them to understand what they're signing up for so they don't become disillusioned and deny me. I want you to be able to endure to the end and be saved because those who endure to the end, they will be saved, promises Jesus. 59 to 60, Jesus' first priority, preach the word, preach the word. Again, he's called someone else to follow after him and he said, no, no, yep, no worries, Jesus. Just let me first go and bury my dad. Now, in the culture of the day, it's likely that his dad wasn't even dead yet. He was maybe old. So he's, first let me go home, you know, I've got to wait for my dad to die, bury him, then I'll, then I'll come and follow after you. And you think, fair, fair request, surely. But not according to Jesus. See, so urgent and important is it that people of all nations in the city and country and overseas get to hear about Jesus. It's more urgent that his followers are solely about the business of preaching the word partnering in whatever way we can to get the word out, to spread the word, than even burying our own parents. Because there's plenty of other people to do that, Jesus assumes. But really I think the point he's making here is less about whether or not to bury your dad. It's that little word first. He's talking about the way we procrastinate or delay and make excuses, I think, isn't he? Oh, look, oh, man, Jesus, um, you know, I've got this career I'm trying to get off the ground and it means I've got to work some Sundays, so you know, I, I can't go with the family to church at the moment. And, um, I mean, I will once, once I get through this little little road bump, you know. Oh, Jesus, look, it's just, um, man, the mortgage is massive. Um, I will start giving to church, but we just got to get the mortgage down. Or, oh, but we've got, got our kids in this school, Jesus, and... You know, there's no way we could go to this place in, in, you know, this town three hours away, you know, because it's, it's sort of this, this whole issue of delay where Jesus and his priorities are not our highest priority. And so what are the good gifts from God? And they are good gifts. Everything I've talked about are beautiful, they're good gifts. The gift of kids, work, family, it's all good gifts from a good and loving creator. But what other good gifts from God you might be using to excuse yourself from serving Jesus more fully, giving more sacrificially, or even going the distance because these people don't have anyone to tell them about Jesus. Being around family, the kids, their schooling, these are important, they're all wise decisions to make. Please hear me say that. Or perhaps it's a hobby or something else. But I think these are some of the, the questions that Jesus might be poking around with us about this morning. Verses 61 to 62 is that whole, another but firster. You know, here's, here's someone who's, yep, Christian going the way but keeps looking back, looking back, you know, just, you know, missing the old life. 
um, missing the ease, the comforts, the simple life of not having to worry about giving up Sundays or serve sacrificially, give money that could pay the mortgage off or risk friends or career or less, you know, speaking about Jesus, that thinking, oh man, life was sort of easier. I look at my non-Christian friends, you know, they're buying their third house and going on holidays every month now and, and um, oh, semi-retired. And, and, and that's, that's the reality. But Jesus says no one who puts their hand to the plough and yet keeps glancing back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking very plainly to them and us this morning because he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He's given his life to save you. Jesus is speaking very seriously to us this morning because Jerusalem discipleship is deadly serious. It's deadly serious. Because if you haven't worked it out yet, Christianity is all about the end game. either win or you lose either end up with Jesus in heaven or without God in hell it's all about the end game about where humans will spend eternity we aren't told how these three people respond at the end are we we're not told I wonder why could it be because the real question this morning is about how you and I are listening to Jesus How well we are seeing the majesty and the power and the glory of Jesus. Seeing the splendor of his suffering and his sacrifice for you. The real question is how you and I are following after this Jesus. The reason I had that um, uh, first chapter of Peter's second letter written out is because, did you pick up that it's all about how to not be ineffective? How to not be unproductive as a follower of Jesus? And did you pick up as well that the problem that the Christians were having was they'd been Christian for a while, but they had forgotten and were forgetting about the majesty of Jesus and his service, forgetting what it cost for their forgiveness. And so he says, look, while there's breath in my lungs... I am not going to stop reminding you, refreshing you in what you already know. I know you already know this stuff. I'm just going to keep saying it over and over and over again. Because otherwise, you won't get your discipleship right. What does he say? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his mega power majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Finally, Peter's letting people know what he saw. Get fit as a flint-faced servant of Jesus. It begins with seeing that Jesus is God's mega powerful saviour leader. He alone can, can give you safe passage home. There's a Christian guy who wrote a book, um, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, that what comes into your mind and mine when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. 
Because our feet will not follow what our heart does not love. Luke 9 and 10, they both start with Jesus commissioning and sending out this bunch of scraggly (laughs) followers who are failing miserably. But he's the one he picks. A bit like Israel, actually. He's the one he picks. These are the guys he picks to go out and tell people about Jesus, to speak the good news to others who need to hear. And I think that's the point. The power of the, this God speaking his gospel through our gospel speaking is what saves. It's like the pressure is off. It's not up to you or I to save people. That's God's job and he does it as we speak the gospel. That's where the power is. Do you remember that little little um, Chinese boy in the cardigan up there, Yumchi? So from Hong Kong, met him last year. They'd been three weeks in Roxby Downs and they've been there ever since. All they know of Australia is Roxby Downs. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> and he came along to the first kids club, you know, learning about Jesus and really it was just a place, it was a community, you know, they were looking for sort of somewhere to belong, the family, mum and dad. And he's back this year, his English is a lot better and he's learning about Jesus. You saw him up there doing the action, singing about Jesus. But here's the thing, who's teaching Yum Chi about Jesus? Well, it was some 14 and 15-year-old teenagers who had never before stood up in front of kids and taught a Bible story. It's two uni students who had never before preached a sermon. Kids that had never led songs. And we, we saw it, didn't we? These kids who rocked up knew nothing about Jesus, singing about Jesus. Now, if God can powerfully speak through their speaking... Could it be that God could speak through yours? Yours and mine. We're just ordinary punters. But here's the takeaway. When you fail or have failed or when you find yourself you've been faithless again, (laughs) remember who the faithful one is? Keep coming to the one who is faithful. Some of my most favourite words in scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 2. For if you have died with Jesus, you will also live with him. If you endure, you will also reign with him. If you deny him though, he will deny you. If you are faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself, his own children. Who he's come to save. Amen.